Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. I'm Catherine Zox. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. You can also listen to me on Thursdays now. I host the social workers on WCDB. It's an FM station, 90.9, Albany, New York. And you can also listen on the net. WCDBFM.com. We have three guests coming up this morning on the Catherine Zock Show on Voice America. Our first guests are Jerry and Brian Monahan. They're a husband and wife team. They've been on the show before, so perhaps you've heard them. Uh, they're authors of When I Love What When a Loved One Falls Ill, How to Be an Effective Patient Advocate. Very important today, as I was saying to both of them, since we have this aging population of baby boomers, 65 and older. Uh, so lots of us are going to fall ill, be diagnosed, and we certainly do need patient advocates, family, friends, whomever they are. Jerry was diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma and given only months to live, and that was 10 to 12, maybe even 15 years ago. Our next guest is Bruce Filer. He's the author of The Council of Dads. This is kind of a unique situation. When Bruce was diagnosed with a life-threatening tumor, uh, his kids were small, so he realized that his two daughters uh, may not have a dad to grow up with. So he reached out to six men from all passages of his life and asked that each one of them to fill in the passages of his daughter's life where he may not be and asked them to be present through all of these passages in his daughter's lives. And he called this group the Council of Dads. Uh, our last guest is Roger Dawson. He's a best-selling author, six books, including The Power of Problem Solving, so today he's going to be talking to us about the power of problem solving. His new book, we're going to hear, Proven text, Techniques and Strategies for Solving Everything the World Throws at You. So that, this, this, that's an all-inclusive. But first, I want to welcome Jerry and Brian Monahan, husband and wife team, authors of When a Loved One Falls Ill. Welcome to the show, guys. Nice to have you on this morning. Thank you. Thanks for having us, Catherine. And you sound great after all these years. And I wasn't sure, Jerry, how, much long, was, how long has it been since you were diagnosed with stage 4 melanoma? Well, it was 13 years before I was cancer, when I was uh, told I had uh, melanoma in my brain. And, and now here you are uh, doing radio shows, going around the country, talking to people, children. You have grandchildren. Um, talk to us about the diagnosis, and uh, you weren't given long to live, but uh, there's something that happened between the two of you, and I guess you decided, hey, we're not going to accept this, and we're going to do something about it. We're going to fight the cancer, but in a kind of very unique way, especially at that time. Well, it, it happened back in May of 1998, and uh, I thought everything was great, and, and life was uh, uh, going wonderful, and then I got a phone call, and a phone call uh, uh, the doctor told me, uh, I want you to come to my office and don't drive. He said that twice, and that rattled me. And I soon found out that I had melanoma and two brain tumors. I also had my lymph nodes, and they were in one other area as well. And they told me that I was stage four. And as you well know, Catherine, uh, there is no stage five. I do know that, and unfortunately I have a, a best friend who was just diagnosed with a stage four a tumor in her kidney, so this is particularly poignant for me to listen to what you guys have to say. Yeah, so, it gave me three to six months to live, and that's 13 years ago. That's 13 years ago this week. Um, the diagnosis was May 21st. Isn't that incredible? That is incredible. But now, tell us. Okay, you're sitting there. They're telling you you have four months to live. What, did, what, what went through your minds, both of you, and probably different things for either one of you? 
Well, I think it's, you know, when you hear words like brain tumors or um, very short uh, time span left to you, it's almost as if you're punched in the stomach and all the air is taken out of your lungs. But when you hear something like that, you only have two choices, two ways to look at it. Um, it's the old fight or flight reflex, and we decided to fight. We, we went out to the car, and we sat there kind of in that numbed silence, you feel, and we held on to each other. And I remember looking at Brian and saying to him, you know, we do not know how much time we have left. Nobody does. Um, but in whatever time we have left, I bet we'll have people that we know who are in car accidents or heart attacks, and they're not going to have the time we have uh, that we're going to love and laugh and we're going to fight this, and, and Brian, you're going to win. I'm not sure I really believe that you're going to win part right then. Uh, I did. But I knew we had to get to work. I heard it. Wait, I just heard a little, I did. did you I did. Brian? You did believe you were I going did. To win. I believed uh, from the very first that uh, I did. I always felt that way. And when Jerry said there were two options, uh, you either don't and don't go or don't. Uh, I always, as a trial lawyer, if you're in trial and something bad goes, and it often did, <laughs> you don't say, oh, my goodness, wasn't that awful. You, you have to take a step forward, and that's the way I always lived. I lived that when I was at the Naval Academy. I lived that in, in Vietnam. I lived it. I did everything in that way. I, I moved forward. So you're, that's interesting. So your profession, what you did, who you, it was who you are, uh, really kind of played into this, uh, you know, I'm used to this. I'm used to people telling me uh, you can't do it or, you know, uh, the, I lost my case and it's going to be appealed or whatever it is. So you don't take no for an answer, and obviously you didn't in this case either. But the book is about a patient advocacy as well because, oh, you've been diagnosed with this illness and you got, both of you got really specific about what you were going to do or how you were going to handle all this. So in talking specifically about the book, because it's all about how to be a, an effective patient advocate. And I have to say, uh, Jerry, there are going to be so many patient advocates. I keep repeating this, but with, this, with the baby boomers, what do they do? How do they handle it specifically? Their, well, whatever you know, diagnosis. it's absolutely true. And yeah. you don't even need a diagnosis of you know, impending death. Yeah. Brian has had, um, I think he's outlived his, his warranty, so now <laughs> we're doing replacement parts. And he's had a new hip and a new knee. And being in the hospital in current years, we have learned that hospitals are understaffed and the nurses, et cetera, are overworked. And the need for being a patient advocate right by your, the side of that patient is incredibly vital. Um, there's one section in the book that call, is called How to Get Out of the Hospital Alive. And there are all sorts of tips in there that we have learned through our practical experience. Things like be there at the time of shift changes. It's a critical time when uh, there's almost a gap in patient care. Um, they're off doing charts. They can't be with your patient. Um, making sure that everybody who comes into the hospital room washes their hands. MRSA and C. diff are, are running rampant uh, as infections in hospitals. There are really practical, common-sense things that you can do, um, whether it's a life-threatening illness or just um, a time of having to have any kind of surgery or be in the hospital for an extended period of time. I also think that now there's been you know, such 
uh, inroads in terms of care of illnesses that once people died from, that now they don't. So this this chronic illness thing is is a big thing too. So people are in and out of hospitals. And I think that infection thing that you mentioned is number one. I mean, I do that myself. Maybe it was after listening to you a couple of years ago on the show. Always ask, and don't be embarrassed, did you wash your hands? Are you going from one patient to the next, and doctors don't wash their hands, nurses don't wash their hands, technicians don't wash their hands. Right. Um, but what about how is, you know, you talk about also in your book, uh, writing down medical history, getting your medical records, but now that things are done electronically, does that change things? Do you do things differently? Do you have all the information uh, uh uh, written down um, electronically, or or how does that work? Well, we haven't. Uh, our places here, um, we haven't had that experience yet, where it's all electronic. But you can ask for a printout, um, and that you know, and they'll t- they might tell you, uh, well, we can't do that. Yes, they can. They can do that for you, and you need to insist on it. Some of it actually works in your favor because it used to be I would say I need a copy of Brian's MRI or CT scans. Um, and you got the big scans themselves, and that was a big hassle for them to go through, and they didn't want to do it. Now they can just hit a button and print out a CD-ROM for you, which you can take with you for a second opinion. So, you know, some of it works for you and some of it works against you. But when you're sitting in the patient room and you've got your little notebook, which I advocate, and they, actually they, put, they printed one in the back of the book um, so that you can use that, but write down what they say. My, my book tells you what Brian's blood pressure was on any given day. It tells you the reaction he had to a medication. And when they went to give the same medication to him um, a couple of months later, I said, uh-uh, he can't have that. That, that causes a, a terrible reaction in him. So I think just in, that, in, in light of that as well, people travel a lot now. They go to different hospitals, different parts of the country, even around exactly. the world. So if you exactly. have that information, you can mm-hmm. give that out. It's vital. It's, yeah, it's vital. vital. One of the things that I think holds people back, I mean, you've got all these great, great uh, tips, and they're very practical, is many people still have that feeling that they are intruding on your loved one's care. They're afraid of the doctor. They're afraid that someone's going to get mad at them if they say something that you know seems to go against what the the nurse or the the protocol is. How do you do? You have any tips for overcoming that? You know, I think whatever whoever you are as a person is the the, the um, way you need to deal with it. But you need to deal with the medical profession as if you are an informed consumer or an uninformed consumer, <laughs> and you want more information. You don't buy a car. You don't buy a dress. You don't buy a house without checking out other possibilities and asking questions. And we need to get over the feeling of it's them or us. You need to think of yourself as an advocate and your patient as part of a team. And, and one thing that you said I think that resonates is, I mean, you said the staff is, uh, is, is understaffed, overworked, so in many cases, they welcome your help. It's not that they see you as an adversary. They see you as somebody who, hey, this, this, this person can help me. Catherine, uh, you're absolutely right. In, um, in the 13 years we've gone through this, I'd say 13 years ago there was more of a resistance from the nurses. But in the latest hospitalizations that Brian's gone in for a knee replacement, I've had the nurses come and say, would you like to know where the nurse's kitchen is? And this is what your husband can have you can go get it for him anytime. Here's where the linen closet is. Um, if he needs a different pillow, you can go get it for him. 
they now are welcoming your help. Um, and that's, that shows how important uh, the patient advocate is right now. Brian, have the roles ever been reversed? I'm hearing all this stuff about you. Okay, you're, you've been, uh, you've, it's been 15 years since you've had cancer, but you've had knee replacement and other stuff. What about Jerry? Have you ever had to be the advocate for her? Or I have to be the advocate all the time, the in one lives? sense. Uh, uh, Jerry is so intent on making a good job that I, can, I could be sitting in the hospital, and I can call friends and say, Mary, I said, would you come over and spend some time with Jerry? Give her a chance to go work out or, or get some more sleep or something like that. People want to help. And so you know, I could call and get flowers sent to her. I can do any so many things from a from a hospital room to help her out to make her job better. And then my responsibility is to make her life easier or better uh, during that uh, period. And that runs from the the moment you're with your when you're in your own problem. And you know, Catherine, there are yeah. websites that help, um, and they're in the book. I just came across a new one that's not even in the book. It's called. Um, mylifeline.org, and it's a calendar where your neighbors, your friends, your family can go on and see, um, boy, Brian and Jerry uh, could really use dinner next Wednesday, and you can, um, you know, plug in and say, we'll do it, or um, Brian's in the hospital and their dog needs to be walked. Who can do that? Um, it's a wonderful resource. You know, we're all in this together. When we talk about the aging population, um, there's a, a huge group of us right now, and we really need to watch out for each other. That's why we wrote the book, as a roadmap for other people. It's our way of trying to pay it forward and help those who come behind us. Yeah, and you've definitely done that. I mean, uh, you, you really set the... The, the pace for all of this, I mean, because you really, uh, I like it because it's so specific. You know, you've got 15 essential advocate tips, go down, look at them, pick the ones that work for you. And you mentioned going online and be able to look at that calendar if your families or whoever have a, a sick person in the family, there are little gaps in the, their care. But you can also use, we've only got a couple minutes left, and especially I think the younger people, Facebook is a great way to do this too as well. It's sort of doing the same thing as you're talking about on the um you know, on the Internet, on the website, you can do that on Facebook. Absolutely. Get... We're just learning how to do that. <laughs> and, well, get you your know, grandchildren. They can help you. That's not a problem. They've taught us how to text and everything else. We have seven grandchildren that Brian would not have seen um, if the outcome had been what the doctors said. Well, that, so, you yeah. know, there is hope. Um, and anyone who's faced with a terrible diagnosis needs to know there is hope. There are the outliers, the people who do make it. But hope needs help. Hope and that needs help. Let's leave it on that it. one. We have to say goodbye, but I like that. Hope needs help. Jerry and Brian Monahan, authors of When a Loved One Falls Ill. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Great Thanks, advice. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, and good Catherine. luck to Appreciate your friend. It. Thank you. Thank you. Next, uh, coming up, we're going to take a short break, is uh, Bruce Feiler, author of The Council of Dads. Uh, he is, uh, Bruce also was diagnosed with a life-threatening tumor, but he had two small daughters, so he had kind of a different issue than Jerry and Brian Monahan. Don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you are listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Be sure to friend us on Facebook. You can do it right now. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for us at keyword Voice America. 
Do you need directions to solid financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. And I'm your social worker with a microphone here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me is, actually, he's a New York Times bestselling author because this book became a New York Times bestseller, The Council of Dads. Bruce was diagnosed with a life-threatening illness, or a tumor actually, in uh, 2008, and the tumor was in his left femur, and it, he had to confront the idea that perhaps he wasn't going to be around for his two daughters because they were very young at the time. So he had a very unique solution uh, to his set of circumstances, and here to tell us about it and his book is Bruce Filer. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning, Catherine. Nice to be with you. Well, I'm glad you're with us. Yes, cancer-free three years later. That's great. That's great. Okay, so but diagnosed, you know, we're all terrified of that kind of a diagnosis, obviously. So here you are, life-threatening tumor. Did they give, uh, tell us a little bit about that. Like when you were diagnosed, did they tell you you had so many months to live or they didn't think you were going to, you know, what was the prognosis? Well, if you go back in the story, I was very much of a traveler and I had um, traveled around the world and written books about five different continents, Japan, Europe. I uh, had most recently spent 10 years retracing the Bible through the desert for a series of books called Walking the Bible and Abraham. And I was the walking guy for all uh, is how the world knew me. And then suddenly I learned that I might never walk again because I had this tumor in my left femur. And uh, so that set me down this long road. It involved basically... Uh, a year of chemotherapy and a very elaborate, rare surgery to rebuild my left leg. And as I said earlier, I am now, three years later, cancer-free, so I have uh, come through it. But at the time, I was the father of, of identical twin daughters who had just turned three, and I was worried about you know, who would create my voice or recreate my voice. And so I reached out to six friends and formed this Council of Dads. How did you and, come up you know, with the idea, though? I wanted, because it's not just, you know, you, just, you say it kind of like, well, I just reached out to these six guys and they would be the council of dads. Yeah. But did you go through that, like when you were going, I know how painful, chemo, you know, chemotherapy and you're yeah. going through all this arduous stuff. Is that, how did the idea come into your head? I mean, you're a creative guy, obviously. all of that, actually. I mean, I was diagnosed on a Wednesday and I woke up on Saturday. Well, you don't really sleep the first week you find out you have cancer. But the, um, I woke up on Saturday with this, idea. And I actually promised, I mean, uh, given your profession, you'll be interested in this, I, I suspect. There is this, I promised I wasn't going to tell my wife, right, that we should, we should focus on the positive. We should, you know, be upbeat. There's this 
idea that you're supposed to happy your way through a problem like this. Yeah. But I actually couldn't control myself, and I told her the next day that I had this idea to form this council of dads. And she loved the idea, but she quickly started rejecting my nominees. So she would say, well, I love him, but I would never ask him for advice. <laughs> So this turned out to be a really efficient way to find out what my wife really thought of my friends. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we decided that we needed a set that, of rules. Yeah. And so I wanted people from different parts of my life who would basically be different parts of my personality. And so I ended up with my childhood friend, my camp counselor, my college roommate, business partner, and a kind of tortured romantic poet friend of mine. And I wrote them all this letter, but I didn't send it or, God forbid, email it. I actually did it in person, and it took a number of months as they came to see me, because they live all over the world, these guys, and they would come to see me, and I would read them this letter, and my wife choked that it was like having uh, six different marriage proposals, right? The flowers, <laughs> the wine, the whole thing, because I kind of friend-married them. And then we formed this council, and that's really all I knew. I didn't know what was going to happen, and my book really tells the story of what happened once they came into our lives and kind of the advice that they began to share with all of us. So when you're talking about the different passages, well, first I just have to make a comment, Bruce, because first of all, you're a lucky man to have six friends. Most guys <laughs> A lot of people say that. It's true. <laughs> I mean, if it were, it, a woman, yes, six friends, you could easily come up with six that you would want to choose. But a man, to be able to even have the choice to eliminate some, I, uh, let's start with that. Uh, that's pretty good. I have to say people have, particularly women, I think, one of the reasons that women, I think, turn out to be bigger readers of the Council of Dads than men um, is because they're like, this is what you people talk about behind the locker room door and when you go fishing. I think they're kind of surprised that we have emotions. I mean, my wife, the book lays out the conversations I had with these dads um, in the wake of this invitation. And she would listen in, and, you know, there's one of them talking about his weight and one of them talking about his divorce and one of them talking about his own feelings toward his own children. And she's like, this is what the moms all talk about when we're dropping our kids off at school. (laughs) So she's kind of just amazed that, that this intimacy is possible among men. So uh, let's take just one example. I mean, we want people to read the book, but give us an example of one man. The first person I put in was my friend Jeff. Now, Jeff uh, lives in Vermont, and he spends about half his time uh, driving around on a tractor and shoveling manure. But he also runs this company that, that sends high school kids on trips abroad. And I had done one of these when I was in high school. And so Jeff his job was going to be to teach him how to travel, right? How to, how to come from a place where you know your neighbors, but yet be open to people around the world. And this is very, traveling is very important to me. I've been a travel writer most of my life. So we drove up to Vermont. Jeff and I went, and we sat in this uh, apple orchard, and I read him this letter. And then when I got to the end, he was crying, and I was crying, and, and he looked at me, and he said, yes. And I kind of had forgotten there was a question at the heart of this, like, would you be in the Council of Dads? And though I keep getting asked this, it never occurred to me that somebody would turn me down, actually. Yeah, but then at the end of this conversation, I said, okay, if you could give one piece of advice to my daughters, what would it be? And Jeff's advice was, be a traveler, not a tourist. When you go out into the world, get off the bus, seek out what's different, really embrace things that are challenging in your life. And he, So I said, okay, so my, my, my girls are going to take their first trip abroad. This is so actually, now that I think about it, it's perfect for your audience. And I said, what advice would you give them? He said, I would tell your daughters to, excuse me, (laughs) finding a cold here today. I would tell your daughters to approach a trip as a young child might approach a mud puddle. You can bend over and look at your reflection in the mirror, 
where you can jump in and thrash around and see what it feels like or smells like. He said, I would tell your daughters, I want to see you back here at the end of your first trip covered in mud. And I have to tell you, I had this conversation. I went back to my wife, and I was like, this advice, this advice may be meant for our girls, but it's going to change your life. It's going to change how you parent. And that's really what compelled me to write this book, which was to get all this wisdom into one place for my daughters and for anybody else who might want to come along. Well, what a wise man, as you say. I mean, wonderful, wonderful perspective on traveling and how it changes you for your girls. But you mentioned your wife. Now, was she threatened at all? Because here you're bringing these men into her life. How logistically do you do that? I mean, Well, she ended up, I mean, first of all, one of the, I, I sort of see this as a kind of team of godparents, right? And I think that one of the reasons that this idea, I think, has taken hold, and uh, this book has been translated into many languages, I've had lots of conversations like this actually around the world, and I think one of the reasons is because I gave each person a task, okay? You teach them how to travel, you teach them how to ask questions, you teach them values. It was easier for the guys because, of course, they're busy. Most of them have kids of their own. So that was helpful, but I think that for my wife, what she liked was it became a support group for her, too, particularly when I was you know, fighting, fighting um, when I was sick. She could call them for advice. They come by, I mean, if you think about it, there's six of them. If they, come by, if they come by twice a year to see my girls, which I would say is, you know, about captures it, that's once a month. That means our girls are having a special encounter with one of these guys. So for them, it's seamless even though the oblig- for the daughters, meaning for my girls, it's seamless. Even for, for, for the guys, it's actually not that much of an obligation. Did the girls know all of the guys that you chose from the beginning? Or were they interested Yeah, to I them? mean, not really, to be honest. And one well, of I mean, they're little girls. But... They've now gone to my, to my wife and said, we want you to have a council of mobs. Like, why does Dad have this? Because they don't really know the shadow that hangs over it. I mean, they, they just know there are these guys who are their friends. And so they have nicknames of their own, like, my friend from my hometown in Georgia, he's Tadpole Ben because he takes some fishing. Mm-hmm. Jeff, I was talking about earlier, he's Tractor Jeff because when we go up to Vermont, he rides them around in a tractor. So they have all these people who open them up for experiences that, frankly, I couldn't even necessarily give them myself. You know what it reminds me of, Bruce? It reminds me of a modern-day version of It Takes a Village. I mean, kind of getting going full circle. You do need that village you know, whenever there's a crisis, whether someone is sick or they dies or, or you know, whatever happens in a family, that you do have these, uh, uh, as you say, a council, to call, in this case a council of dads, but it can be a council of moms. Um, and how, is, I'm always curious as to, it seems to me that the Internet and Facebook and all, would all help to, to, to make Well, it is, happen. because we can email and things like that. And, in fact, I set up a website called councilofdads.com where people who are doing this have shared their story. There's tips on councilofdads.com about starting your own council. And I think, you know, my way of describing it, it, may, it might actually be the original social network, but to me the way I describe it is that for me personally, it's turned parenting from a solo sport into a team sport. And so that when I have a challenge or something that maybe, you know, your kids ask you questions, and particularly for men, I'm sure you're sensitive to this, there is this pressure to be, you know, Mr. Fix-It, Mr. Know-It-All, to solve every problem. I can't solve every problem, but I feel like I have this wisdom in my back pocket. So to me, this book is kind of like a psalm book of wisdom almost. It sits in my pocket that when my girls ask me a question, I think, well, how would Max answer that question? Or, or how would uh, David answer that question? And I feel like I have this community with me at all times. 
all times when, in fact, it can be quite lonely to be a parent at times. And I think it's not only lonely, Bruce. I think also if you're using the energy to hide from the world and and to or and or to pretend that you're happy and things are going well, the energy is really going in the wrong direction, and and you use up all this what could be positive energy in a negative way. But when you're doing what you do and you're getting it out there and you're open and you're honest and you're look and you're dealing with what is, not with what you would like it to be, I think that all adds to your physical health as well. I really believe that. I tell people if I could give you one piece of advice from my experience with the Council of Dads, it would be sit down with your closest friends and tell them what they mean to you. It is incredibly rare. We almost never do it, but it will transform the relationship, and it will then, if you, if you go so far as to form one of these councils of moms or dads, it will invite your friends into the thing that is most important to you, which is the heart of your family. And that's what is so powerful. This builds a bridge from your friends to your family, and that's a bridge that turns out I've now, I didn't do this with this in mind. It turns out I've now discovered to be a bridge that's been broken in many homes. What kind of a response, or can you give us an, just, just tell us a story about, because uh, obviously there are many people who have done this now, and um, well, two things. What's the most difficult part of doing it? What's the most difficult thing that you have to do when you, um, when you create a council of dads? Because there are going to be some challenges. And then second, give us a, a real, you know, a story, an uplifting story of how this helped someone else, I mean, as well as you, obviously. Well, I think that I did it for a specific reason, but it turns out that lots of people are doing it for different reasons, okay? So, yes, I'm seeing people who are sick. I've done a program with the U.S. military. Military people spend lots of time away from their families, so we did a special program for military moms and dads to form these councils. But just, you know, one one individual story, I mean, I, two, two things come to mind when you, you talk about how people have used this. Number one, I've seen parents of teenagers use this. So one woman told me after reading the Council of Dads, she took a piece of paper, wrote the names of, uh, <laughs> I think it was, maybe five or six friends, put it on her fridge with their telephone numbers next to it. And she told her children, if you ever have a problem, call one of these friends of mine. Because parents, cause kids, teenagers, they need to separate from their parents, but the parents want some trusted voice in those kids' lives. And then the other thing I've seen, which has been most surprising but very moving to me, is people, grown-ups who lost a, a parent when they were younger or almost any time, maybe in their teens or, or 20s, who have retroactively gone back and created a kind of council of moms or dads to get closer to the parent whose voice they really want in their lives. So that's been a really shocking thing to me, but an incredibly moving thing. And I think that's what happens when you, I've told a very particular story in my book. Each of these guys, what's the wisdom they wanted to convey, and then it's various father figures of my father, my grandfathers, and I basically, each of my chapters is a life lesson for how to live, but then to see people, how they've gone beyond it in a way I never imagined, that's what's been so satisfying about the Council of Dads. The book. Yeah, and what, I mean, what an exciting, I say, project, but I mean, you know, when I hear it, we're going to take a, we have a minute left, so we're just going to take a break, and then we'll be right back. But, uh, I mean, you've sort of, you've overcome that whole, you know, when you think of illness, or I do, maybe in the traditional sense, illness involves isolation, especially with the diagnosis of cancer, and that is so not true, and uh, obviously not true in terms of what you've done in the Council of Dads. Uh, 
We're talking to Bruce Feiler, and we will be back in a minute. Don't go away because I have lots more, many, many more questions to ask Bruce. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Fox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. And I'm talking to Bruce Feiler, author of The Council of Dads, which is a New York Times best-selling book. He was, if you're just joining us, Bruce was diagnosed with uh, a life-threatening tumor. And uh, this was in 2008. He had two small daughters, and uh, he figured out a very unique way to, well, I would say Bruce still remain in their lives in, in, in case... The di- in, in case you weren't here to be with them for the to, for those special times in their lives, so you uh, he you engaged your uh, six friends uh, to do just that. But um, you know, I'm on Amazon.com, and there's a picture, beautiful picture of you and your family. Your girls are adorable, um, and Except your wife. Not. <laughs> <laughs> and and you're adorable too, but. I was just looking at the girls. Yeah, so there and there are websites that uh, you have a website. The Council of Dads has a website. Any other websites that you can recommend um, that you think? Well, yeah. Help? I mean, in, in terms of obviously, we're doing this on the internet. Yes, you obviously can go. People who want to get the book can go to Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or any of those sites, and you can download the book or you can purchase the book. Councilofdads.com. I got the councilofdads.com is a site I set up which has a tip sheet on how to form your own and other people have, have shared their story. And I actually have my own site called brucefiler.com. That's B-R-U-C-E-F-E-I-L-E-R, brucefiler.com, where there's lots of information about me and my other books um, and, uh, and, and lots of things like that. What would you do for professionals, you know, I'm a social worker. There are social workers, counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists who deal with or work with uh, geriatrics patients, who work yeah. with patients with life-threatening illnesses, chronic illnesses, all of those things. Isn't this the kind of thing that they should be? I mean, I, it seems to me, you know, you should go around talking to schools of, of social work and, and graduate schools in psychology because this should be something that should be incorporated into the curriculum. I think that I have done a lot of talking to, to nursing groups and things like that, and, and I would say a couple things about that. The, the first thing I would say is that when some, 
that, that isolation that you brought this up is a is a profound problem. I it didn't happen that way in my case. I mean, I when we had twins, I thought that it would be all hands on deck. Okay, Linda and Bruce have twins. Let's all go around and help. Instead, it was everybody run the other way. Mm-hmm. Every man for himself. Exactly. It's I like okay, come you to guys have four years. When when I got sick, I thought it would be everybody run the other way. Instead, it was the opposite. Then it was all hands on deck, and so we experienced incredible uh, kind of rallying around and people being supportive. My siblings started an online casserole club where people we got a meal service to bring meals a couple of days a week because my my wife works. We have three year old twins, and suddenly her husband's in now the hospital. That's one thing. The second thing I would say. <laughs> so I think that friends. There are lots of things you can do that's a small bit of time for the friend, but collectively becomes very powerful. The second thing um, I would say is you know, one of the pieces of advice I give when, when you are kind of isolated like that is to find people who have been through a similar experience. It doesn't even have to be the same disease, but somehow connecting with somebody who has been, particularly if you're a young person, if you're somebody in your 20s or 30s or 40s, we know that older people get sick, but somehow it's even more isolating when it's a younger person. Uh, uh, when it's a younger person who gets sick, and so that can be, and you kind of feel guilty, and so that's that's an important thing. And I think that what happened here with the Council of Dads in particular is that you know a lot of people said, oh well, you know you can't do this because I, I wasn't asking them to be guardians of my children. I was asking them to be my voice, in effect, to. To, to have a certain thing that they would say to the children. And that's really, to me, what this is in, in, in a lot of ways is kind of reimagining the godparent. Uh, so because the godparent, it's really an idea that needs to be reimagined because why should you just lock in one person when the child is born? Because, in fact, we all have different sides of our personalities. So I found by broadening it, by having six people, my wife has ten in her council of moms, I mean, she was a hatchet person telling me to keep my list low, but then she was a softie when she compiled her own list. But the other thing, Bruce, I think, is, community... you know, generations ago, but generations ago, and, and maybe in my, I was just talking to a friend of mine about this. My grandmother had 12 brothers and sisters, so there was a council there, and when one person, a parent died or one person, a parent wasn't available, everybody came in and, and took care of the children and took the family in. We don't have that today. That's not available. So this kind of substitutes for that. Um, but also, you mentioned younger people, and did you find that, I mean, some, you know, when older people get sick, right, it's expected, and there's kind of, maybe there's mechanisms in place more for taking care of them, but also with a younger person, when they're, let's say somebody in their 20s or 30, and they're diagnosed with, I say, terminal cancer, um, everyone jumps on the bandwagon, everybody wants to help, but then after a while, especially if, if they, uh, are, they survive, which is a good thing, people kind of lose, you know, interest, they don't, Stick with it. They don't have the same. Well, that's kind of... been one. I mean, a lot of people have said to me, "Did you disband?" I mean, I'm three years now, cancer-free, living a full life, traveling again, and people keep saying to me, "Did you disband the Council of Dads?" I was like, "I'm never going to disband it." In fact, if anything, I can't believe I lived my my life as a parent for so many years without it. It's become incredibly meaningful uh, to all of us. We get together. We were trying to do it every year. Now we're going to do it every other year, but. It's a constant thing in our lives, and my wife really likes it because she uses these guys as a support for her. So it has created this, 
you know, my way of saying it is, it's, you know, parenting is not a solo sport anymore. It's a team sport. And so, yes, I think that the, 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 any time you can expand the group of people that you're going through life with, that's a better thing. Maybe we used to have it, or at least we fantasized about it, right? In and out of people's homes, a bunch of eyes looking out the window, watching Johnny learn how to ride a bike. We, we don't have that now. This, in a lot of ways, is the original social network. It is, and it's, it's, uh, it is the original social network. It's almost like it's a psychological health care proxy. I mean, I, that's words, a really good way of putting it, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, because we and because many times we don't necessarily know when we're going to die. I mean, we can be in a car accident; things can happen. But you, if you have this in place, yeah, it's the then... opposite of HIPAA. If HIPAA, you know, if the HIPAA regulations in America at least say you can't tell anybody, you have to get special permission to learn about the medical condition, et cetera, et cetera. This is basically saying everybody's going to know everything. We're all going to share, and we're all going to be in this together. And I have not met a single person who hasn't been touched by this idea or anybody who's read the book who hasn't used some of the wisdom. People are craving it, but they're, it's just not the way we talk in contemporary society. And particularly men are craving it, and somehow this gives people permission, men to, to, to talk about their vulnerabilities, women to say, look, men have this too. I mean, it's easy to joke women saying, oh, who, who has six friends? Like, we started this conversation. Yeah. And that's a, you know, that's a fun conversation. But the truth is, the men often don't feel they're allowed to do this. And somehow being a man out there talking about it um, has, uh, I think, opened up a lot of men to talk about it in a way they don't feel like they have permission to a lot. And it's a topic that sickness, illness, is equated, sometimes men equate that with weakness. I mean, yeah. I am a woman. I grew up with a family of men, brothers, sons. I mean, I'm the only woman in the family, so I really do understand what you're talking about. And men don't want to be associated with illness, so that it's, it's the topic itself or the condition itself uh, is something that tr- traditionally, and I, not even traditionally now, men have difficulty talking to Which their Which is why about. it's easier to talk about often with the men, with other men, than maybe they don't want to. And I know this myself. There were definitely things that I was going through that I didn't want to share with my wife. She had enough on her plate. Yep. It was already pretty miserable for her. And yet being able to talk to these male friends somehow made it safer for me and less threatening for her. Well, I think you bring up a good point because it's true that your partner, your wife, your loved one is undergoing, they've got their own set of fears and issues and all kinds of stuff and pressure, physical and emotional pressure, so that you take a lot of that burden off of them if you can talk intimately with a, with a council of dads, not just superficially to the, you know somebody, but when you have that, able to have other intimate conversations that are satisfying to you as the patient or the person, it really does help your... And even, when you're, even now that I'm well, it's just very comforting to know, you know what, there are these friends out there. I mean, I speak to them. They know what my kids were for Halloween, right? They know what's going on in my life. They know what's going on with my parents as they're getting older and declining. And they're just people who, who have the basic knowledge. And so, therefore, if I need to call one of them up tonight and say, I need to talk about something, they're with me. They have it. We're invested in all of our lives. And they all have taken this as an obligation on their part just to be familiar with the kids growing up. Even if it just forces us on Mother's Day last week, whatever it was, 10 days ago, when, when our girls had a lemonade stand. My wife, who did she email? She emailed the family and another email to the Council of Dads. You should know our girls, they have a lemonade <laughs> stand. 
she teaches entrepreneurship around the world, so she forced them to invest their allowance, and they got nine dollars nine times return, right? So their four dollars became thirty eight dollars, <laughs> and she was so proud. She emailed the council of dads, so they know that, and so therefore, you know, next time we talk, they just have this basic knowledge already with them. Bruce, what you have such an incredible, creative, innovative family. Uh, boy, your girls are going to be really. <laughs> <laughs> have lots of advantages as young women. I hate to say goodbye to you, but uh, my next guest is waiting, so we do have to say goodbye. But Bruce's book, you can buy it online, Bruce Filer, The Council of Dads, and you can go online to his website, Bruce Filer, and it's Filer, F-E-I-L-E-R.com, uh, for more information. Love to have you on my other show, The Social Workers, as well. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Catherine. Be well, everybody, and happy yep. Father's Day. Coming up next is Roger Dawson. He's a best-selling author, also six books, including The Power of Problem Solving. And he's going to tell us that we're going to hear about proven techniques and strategies for solving everything the world throws at you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Do you want to know what's really going on these days? Well, Capital Thinking takes you inside the worlds of policy, politics, law, and business. What happens in Washington, on Wall Street, and in our nation's legal system impacts your business every day. We're taking you on a behind-the-scenes tour of all of it. Each week, we bring you unfiltered conversation with a variety of influential policymakers, lawyers, and business leaders. I'm Kevin O'Neill, and I'm your host as Capital Thinking tours the halls of power. Join me for Capital Thinking on the Voice America Business Network each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific Time. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on The Catherine Zox Show on World Talk Radio and VoiceAmericaVariety.com. My last guest is Roger Dawson. Roger is a best-selling author, six books, including The Power of Problem Solving. He's going to tell us and give us proven techniques and strategies for solving everything the world throws at you. I don't think there's anybody out there who doesn't need these proven strategies and techniques. And uh, Roger has been all over the world. He's written books on negotiation, negotiating, confident decision-making, secrets of power, persuasion. Uh, When I say he's worked with salespeople at the top, of uh, the top companies throughout the United States, China, New Zealand, and he lives in California. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Roger. Uh, great to be with you, Catherine. Okay, so, you know, problem solving. I, every day I wake up, it, no, you know what? I have to say, I don't necessarily, sometimes I'm up all night trying to figure out how to solve my problem. Yes, everybody's wallowing in problems right now, and the problem is that they're concentrating on the, the problem rather than looking at a method to solve the problem. So the book is full of methods for different solutions, giving you different solutions to problems. So why do we problems range all the way from things that you have so many solutions that you don't know which one to pick, all the way down to the other end of the scale where you just don't see any solution to this problem whatsoever. 
Roger, give us an example of, of both. Okay, first of all, problems where you're overwhelmed with solutions. You're in a bookstore in an airport, and you want to buy a book for the flight home, uh, but you, you look at all this assortment, the more you look, the more confused you get. This is a problem that should be solved with parameters. Before you go into the bookstore, you say to yourself, I don't want to pay for a hardcover. I want to get an author I've read before, and I don't want anything so, too heavy that it's hard work to read. And the first book you run across that meets those three criteria is the one you, you pick up. You That's don't stand there getting more and more confused and frustrated. At the other end of the scale, you have solutions where you just don't see a thing that, that you can do. And there we give a 10-step process of creative thinking to come up with more solutions. And in between those two extremes, you've got all kinds of other solutions. For example, do we or don't we questions. Uh, do we go skiing this weekend or don't we? Do we buy this new company or don't we? Do we buy this piece of real estate or don't we? Anytime we have a do we or don't we a problem to solve, your first thought should be, what happens if we do nothing? The police has this house surrounded. There's a man with a gun inside threatening the occupants. And the question is, do we attack or don't we attack? And you should always be thinking in that situation, what happens if we do nothing? The classic example of that was the Branch Davidians down in Waco, Texas, where the um, police decided to invade the compound. They set the compound on fire. Dozens of people died that didn't have to. What they should have done was said, what happens? What's going on bad here that uh, we have to stop right now? And if they'd have thought that through, they would not have attacked at all. By the time they got to the free man in uh, Montana, they had learned the lesson. It took them nine months, but they threw a fence around the place, stopped anybody going in or out, and after nine months, they surrendered without the loss of any lives. But, Roger, in that example, I mean, that's not something that most of us face every day, because I want to go through these. I mean, you gave us the bookstore example. Okay, that, and I like that. Three parameters, make a choice, and, and get out of there. But then you said, because I, I want to backtrack to something that's more something that we can relate to as, you know, as individuals. Like, okay, so you have a problem that has like 10 different solutions, but a very difficult problem, something that's a serious problem with your, your, maybe what job to choose or what, you know, uh, you know, or if you have some kind of a medical condition, how to treat yourself, but something like that where there might be a lot of different solutions, but there are, you know, real consequences to making or serious consequences? First of all, you've got to recognize there are only two kinds of problems. There are money problems and people problems. Now, that I have the toughest time convincing people that that's true. And I can understand that because it took me a long time to understand that that's true. There are only money problems or people problems. The first thing you do is take a look at the problem and say, would a massive amount of money solve this problem? And if it would, you've got a money problem, not a people problem. Now, some things are people problems. I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in a situation that no amount of money is going to solve this problem. He's simply got a people problem. But the difficulty is that most people confuse the two. They think they've got a people problem when really they've got a money problem. Oh, give us an example. It's the uh, person who's saying, I've got this child living at home. They're 25, 30, 35 years old. They're carousing all the time. They won't go get a job. They're driving me crazy. Uh, but I don't want to be ruthless and throw them out of the house. And you say to them, well, if you gave the child $1,000 a month so they could rent an apartment, would that solve the problem? Oh, sure, that is take care of the problem. 
but I don't have the thousand dollars. Well, that may be so, but at least now you understand that it's a money problem, not a people problem. So that's the first step, is determining whether money would solve the problem or whether it wouldn't. And most people confuse the two. Which is the most prevalent of problems, money or people? Uh, well, I think in the economy today, you'd have to say it's money problems. But the toughest ones to solve are people problems. I mean, there's situations that just no amount of money or talking or you've got to keep the channels open. You've got to keep talking to that child that's angry with you and won't talk to you. You've got to keep talking and talking and talking until suddenly the light goes on. Well, I think the example you gave Arnold Schwarzenegger and Maria Shriver as, as a people problem is really stands out because they both they certainly have enough money. That's not the issue. Right. So that really kind of I mean it's. Well, Angela Jolie is talking to her father John Voigt for the first time in ten years, and you look back at what this started this problem, and it was a uh, it's a comment that he made on a TV interview that she was having mental problems. She was going through a situation where she was cutting herself. Um, uh, because that seemed to solve her problems. And he made a public comment about it, and she didn't talk to him for 10 years, but now they're back together talking again. So you never close that door. You always keep that door a little bit ajar so that you can make contact again. So what got you interested in this? How did, I mean, was this a problem? Did you have difficulty solving problems and then sort of tried to figure out how to do it? And then how did you come up with this, this uh, I'll call it a, a paradigm, or this, um, you know, the... How did you? Yeah, well, 20 years ago, I wrote a book uh, called Confident Decision Making on, on how to make business decisions. And I had so many people read that book and then call me or email with, with a personal problem that I thought people really need help with solving problems. They, they worry about problems, they're concerned about problems, but they don't have a methodology for solving problems. So that's what we put together. We took every type of problem and came up with a way of handling it. People are telling me that the best way to read this book is to read the uh, section at the end of each chapter, which is key points from this chapter. If you read that first before you read the book, you get a very good overview of what it's all about. Yeah, what you say is, uh, one of the things is um, treat every problem as a golden opportunity, because I think that's key. I mean, if you look at it that way, if you start out that way, that you're, this is an opportunity, what, for growth, for, for learning, for a lot of different kinds of things, because then you come at the problem in a very different way. If you look at it as something positive rather than negative. Yes, people who have lived a very sheltered life, uh, perhaps a woman who's going through a divorce for the first time, she's on her own, she's having to solve these problems for the first time, they simply don't have enough experience on dealing with problems because they've been too sheltered all their life. Be grateful for those problems because within that problem is the seed of an opportunity to do some great things. Make your intuition work for you? How do you do that? Say that again? You say make your intuition work for you when you're solving a problem. How yes. Do you do that? Now, in, in terms of problem solving, we as a country have gone far away from intuit, intuitive thinking. We used to admire it. We used to like the person who just come up with the solution without any explanation for it. <coughs> but then we got into such... A scientific uh, bonanza of information gathering from computers and other methods of communication that we got away from that. And we say, why do we need intuition when we can use a mainframe and come up with the decision tree and come up with the, the perfect solution in seconds? Well, I think intuition is still very important. There's, there's some things that 
machines just can't do. It takes the human brain. And we teach you how to settle that brain, put it to sleep, calm down, create an environment where it can create solutions for you. And one good way to do that is to get away from the area where the problem exists. See, Catherine, if the, if the building you're in right now starts jumping up in the air and dropping down and everything's getting damaged, it, it, it shouldn't be doing that. You should be complaining about that. People shouldn't have babies with their maids, and they shouldn't do this, and they shouldn't do that. Well, that's very fine, and I agree with that, but don't do it while the building's still jumping up and down on you. Move away from the problem so it's not hurting you at that point. So try to avoid the problem? Is that what you're saying? Or no, not right? avoid it. The problem's already happened, but it's damaging you. It's, it's hurting you. It's gnawing away at you. Move away from that. Get yourself off to where a battered wife would be a terrific example of that. Get to a situation where you're not getting beat up anymore, and then you can begin to solve the problem. So you have to remove yourself from the playing field, like is what social workers yes. call it. And then you can, well, if it's physical, obviously, then you're going to be safer. But also, you can, emotionally, you could do that, too. Is that what yes. you're saying? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you emotionally remove, if you're just embroiled in it, you can't solve the problem. Um Website that we can go to? Do, I mean, do you, do you have a website, and the book has a website? If, uh, Roger yes, Dawson. Uh, the website is rogerdawson.com, and, we can and there's it. all kinds of articles, uh, free articles people can pull down and read on that website. The book, go to your local bookstore first, that we are in danger of losing a really valuable asset to our communities, and that's the local bookstore. So to always try that first for, to buy a book. Okay, that's one problem solved. If you want to buy the book, go to the local bookstore. And great having you on the show today. Thank you, Catherine. Great to be with you. Thank you. Secrets of Problem Solving, Roger Dawson. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. Hope you've had a good morning with us. This morning I have. Uh, Enjoy your week, and we will see you next Wednesday. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox.